time together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Though it is easy for us to fixate on all the things that we can easily complain about, Lord, we take this time to acknowledge that you are good, that you are kind, that you are faithful, and that you provide and you are protective of those who bear the name of your Son. And even those who don't know you, you are the great creator, Father of all. And Lord, we take this time to acknowledge your goodness, your faithfulness, your kindness to us so that we can gather together both in person as well as online so that we can hear the preaching of the word. Father, we do believe that it is only in your word that we find true sustenance for our souls that gives us the strength to face whatever difficulties, whatever trials that we must face. Father, we thank you for the guiding light of your scriptures so that your people are no longer in the dark having to fend and grope for themselves what is secure and what is true. Father, you are the meaning and hope of our lives, and we pray now that you would speak through your Holy Spirit as your people gather today, and we ask, God, that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, if you ever study the history of our faith, one of the things that you'll discover is that there are various permutations, various traditions in terms of how God's people gather together to worship God. And the reason for this variety is because certain church traditions will emphasize certain particular things as being the primal thing or the most preeminent thing. For example, there are some church traditions that emphasize the musicality of the worship of God, and as a result, they'll have magnificent choirs singing majestic hymns, chanting enchanting songs. Other church traditions will emphasize the communion table. Right dab in the middle of their sanctuary, they'll have an altar and on display the body and blood of Jesus Christ represented through the bread and the wine. And still others, there will be churches that will emphasize odd ceremonies that involve the ringing of bells, burning of incense, all orchestrated by an individual who dresses like they're from the 1500s. And yet still there are churches with certain traditions that will do very kind of chaotic acts during the worship service where they'll do things like handling poisonous snakes and even drinking poison itself. All throughout the ages and all throughout the world, various churches have had certain traditions and certain permutations of what they consider to be central in the worship of God through his gathered people. But if you've been coming to our church for a while and if you've been paying attention, you'd have easily figured out right away what we believe is the most preeminent, most prominent, and really the most important thing when it comes to God's people worshiping God together, and that is the Bible itself the word of God. We at our church really emphasize the significance and the importance of God's word, evidenced by the fact that through our worship service, or what we sometimes refer to as the liturgy, is just permeated with scripture. Whether you're talking about the beginning of the service that has the call to worship that usually quotes an Old Testament psalm, or maybe in the big middle of it, that involves the confession of sin, usually an Old Testament prophetic book, or the assurance of pardon that comes to us from usually the New Testament, the Gospels, or the letters. And then, of course, you have the main text of the service, which the sermon is based on and where the Word of God is preached. Here at our churches and churches like ours, we emphasize the Word of God. 
But you know what? It's not just our church. Even the churches and the traditions that I mentioned earlier, they too emphasize the word as well because of the fact that when they try to justify the focuses that they do, the communion table, the singing, the handling of snakes, they all point to some passage of scripture that they feel warrants that. Just in case you're curious, Mark 16 verse 18 is where those churches that handle snakes and drink poison get their justification from. But whatever church that you go to that truly claims the name of Jesus, the word of God is central. And the question is, why? Why is the Bible, why is the word such a preeminent focus? Well, that's the question that our passage today is going to answer for us, a passage that really is a snippet of one of the most famous prayers that Jesus lifted up for us in John chapter 17. And as we take a look at what Jesus is praying (coughs) for his people, we will find three specific answers to the question of why the Bible is so important, especially when the church gathers to worship God. And those three answers are as follows, okay? So Christians can bless the world, not hate it. So Christians can engage the world, not avoid it. And so Christians can remember we're not better than the world. Why is the Bible so important? Because God wants us to love the world, not hate it, engage the world, not avoid it, and remember that we're not better than the world. Okay, so let's take a look at the first answer that we see. So Christians can bless the world, not hate it. So as I just said a moment ago, this is a portion, our passage is a portion of a prayer that Jesus lifted up for his people. Now, here's the thing that you need to know about Jesus and prayer, and that is he did a lot of it. All throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus always praying. And because it is so frequent and so common for Jesus to pray, you may be tempted to think that no particular prayer of Christ is any different than any prayer that he lifted up, as if, as if they all say the same thing. But you would be so wrong to come to that conclusion, okay? Every prayer that Jesus prayed that is recorded for us in the Bible tells us something unique that no other prayer of his does, and this prayers especially, is no different. And so the question is, what's so unique, what's so special about this prayer that Jesus lifts up for us? Well, it'll be helpful to know that this is the prayer that Jesus lifted up right before he was betrayed by his disciple Judas, where he was falsely accused by the Jewish authorities, therefore falsely arrested by the Roman soldiers, and then finally unjustly condemned That resulted in him being tortured and ultimately killed on the cross by Pontius Pilate. Now, here's the thing. Jesus knew all of this was going to happen right before he lifted up this prayer. He knew all of this was waiting for him. All of this was going to transpire. And when you realize that, you come to discover what is so special about this prayer. This prayer reveals what is so important to Jesus Christ. It reveals what, in his mind, is the most important priority. Okay, And if you think about it, it makes total sense. Because if the next 24 hours were going to be your last, chances are you're probably not going to be doing the normal things or thinking the normal things or even praying the normal things that you pray about. I don't imagine that if we knew that we were going to die within a day, we would be praying things like, oh, Lord, please let me get that date with that person across the hall. Or, Lord, please let me get into that school next semester. Or, Lord, please let me get that promotion next quarter. When we know we have limited time on earth, we don't even think about ourselves, do we? Who do we think of? We think of our loved ones. 
We think of those who are going to be left behind, those who are going to be affected by our absence. You're going to make arrangements. You're going to make sure that with your departure, those who you leave behind are going to be considered. And that's what Jesus is doing here in this prayer. Jesus is thinking of his disciples. That includes all of you today. He's thinking and he's therefore praying for all Christians everywhere in all times as he is lifting up this final prayer to his father in heaven. And so with that in mind, the question now becomes, what exactly is Jesus praying for Christians everywhere? Well, let's take a look to what it actually says in verse 15. Listen to this portion of Jesus's prayer. It says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, so here is Jesus making a specific request to God the Father that the Father would not take Christians out of the world. That's what he's specifically asking, right? And yet, if you read the verse that comes right before this request, verse 14, you could easily interpret this request of Christ as either downright crazy or even cruel. Why? Well, what does it say in verse 14? I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Interesting. It turns out <clears throat> that the world that Jesus wants his father to keep us Christians in happens to be the world that hates us. Again, Jesus is specifically praying that his father in heaven, our father in heaven, would not take us out of a world that hates us. Our Jesus? Our Jesus is actually praying for us to be put in a place that is hostile, that is hateful towards us? What is going on? Well, if you want to find the answer, you have to rewind a little bit to the third chapter of this gospel and zero in in the verses of 16 and 17 to find the answer. Listen to what it says there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Interesting. The world that Jesus wants us to go into, which happens to be the same world that hates Christians, is also the very world that our God loves. What? Our God loves the place that hates his people? Ah, but if you look carefully at what it says in other passages of Scripture, like John 15, verse 18, you would come to discover that the only reason why this world hates you is because it hates your God even more. You see? The only reason why this world is against you, Christian, is because it is preeminently against your Father in heaven, which means... The Father's love for the world is a love that is crazy love because it's a love directed towards those who hate him. Ah, now we understand. Now we understand exactly what Jesus is specifically requesting in verse 15. See, when Jesus is praying to his Father, Lord, please don't take your people out of the world that hates it, what he's really asking is, Father, make sure that our people follow your example. Make sure that our people love the world that hates it because you love the world that hates you. That's what Jesus is specifically asking, that we would love the world that hates us just as the world hates our Father, and yet he still loves. Now, all of that begs the question, how in the world do you love someone that hates you? How do you bless those who curse you? How do you be kind to those who are cruel to you? 
Because let's be honest, our natural instinct, our natural proclivity is to only love those who love us and to only hate those who hate us. There is no crossover in those categories, right? It's just not natural for us to love those who hate us. And so how in the world are we able to do such a thing? Go back to what it says in verse 14, where Jesus says this, I have given them your word. And there it is, your word. Whose word? God's word. What is God's word? The Bible. The Bible. Here we come to find the first reason why God gives us his word and why it's so central for God's people to be centered on it when they worship him as a corporate collective is so that we would be encouraged, we would be educated, and therefore we would be equipped to do something not natural but supernatural. Where it's through the word of God that we are empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit to do something that we cannot do on our own strength. Something that does not come natural to us. Something that comes from above that therefore is supernatural. It is when we come under the word of God that we're able to love the place that hates us so much. And this is something you guys need to grasp. Because there are so many people who fly under the banner of Christianity, people who call themselves genuine Christians who do not agree with this, who they have the opposite polar mindset, where they think that part of their devotion to God, part of the way that they live out their Christianity is to have hostility towards the world, hatred towards the world, where they're constantly contending against the world, be in conflict against the world, and even try to conquer the world, whether conquering it politically conquering it culturally, or even conquering it militarily? Yeah. If you ever read church history, you will read countless and countless of quote-unquote Christian movements that have been led by those who felt justified in having what they thought was a holy hatred to drive and motivate them to get into positions of power so that when they were, they did an atrocious job of loving the world because they didn't love the world at all. Instead, they were very cruel to the world. Consider these words from Christian scholar Craig Carter. He writes this, quote, Cut off from the true gospel, the church is insufficiently critical of false gospels and false messiahs. So the church that has veered away from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ quite often is led in embarrassing alliances with wild-eyed nationalists and revolutionary zealots and find itself compromised and discredited. Like the Israelite kings of old, Western generals, emperors, and kings have always had their court prophets assuring them that absolutely nothing can possibly go wrong, and that God definitely is on their side. To the Germanic tribes in the early Middle Ages, Christ was a warlike king, and his disciples were a band of warriors. To the German Christians of the 1930s, Christ was a strong, muscular, Aryan figure. To the liberation theologians of the 20th century, he was a simple symbol of the revolution, the peasant guerrilla fighter, end quote. When the, gos- excuse me, when the church forgets the gospel, the church loses the ability to love the world that hates it. Let me say that again. When the church forgets the gospel, the church loses its power to do the supernatural, to love the world that hates it and their God. This is why the Bible is so important, why we must constantly sit under the teachings of the Bible, because what is the Bible preeminently about? What What is its principal focus It is the gospel to where the more you sit under the gospel, the more you are sitting under the word, the more you are enabled to love a world that hates you and your God. Now, one question that's probably swirling through your head is, 
What exactly does that mean, pastor? What does it mean to love the world the way Jesus is praying that we would? Because that word love is so nebulous, it's so vague, it can mean different things to different people. It can mean polar opposites to different kinds of people. So what exactly does it mean that God wants us to love the world as he loves the world? Well, now you stumble upon the second reason why God gave us his word and why it's so important in our worship of him, which leads me to my next point. So Christians can engage the world, not avoid it. Let's read just the first half of verse 15 of our passage where it says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Okay, so as I said a moment ago, Jesus is praying to his father, to our father in heaven, that God would not take us out of the world. And indeed, he did it. Am I right? I see all of you in here. Who of us have ever experienced the moment that the moment you were convinced and converted to Christianity, you were beamed up to heaven into God's heavenly presence? None of us. I still see you here, right? Who of our babies, the moment they were baptized, just disappeared and was immediately transported into the pearly gates of heaven? No. Our kids are still with us. By virtue of the fact that we are all still here, even at the moment when heaven was made accessible to us as becoming Christians, tells us that God wants us to engage the world, not avoid it. Let me say that again. The very fact that we Christians are still on this earth, even when we had the moment of heaven's access, tells us that God wants us to be engaging the world, not avoiding it. And yet what is so tragic is that it seems that there are so many churches, even certain Christian traditions, that do all they can to avoid the world at all costs, where the only engagement that they do is Christian engagement of sorts, whether it's only hanging out with Christian friends, whether it's only listening to Christian podcasts, whether it's only reading Christian books, whether it's only attending Christian events, and the only worldly engagement they do are the necessary things like going to school, going to work, buying groceries, buying a car, getting a house. But consider these challenging words from Pastor Tony Evans, where he writes this, quote, there is a lot of confusion here, Some churches are so heavenly-minded, they are no earthly good. They sing, shout, and pray while the community outside continues to spiral downward into social and moral decay. People in churches like these love God, but they don't take that love outside the church's wall to the neighborhood. They're basically hiding from the world and its ugliness. There doesn't appear to be any relationship between this heavenly gathering and the hellish environment outside its walls. Churches like this are looking toward eternity, but are little benefit in history. This is wrong. The church is made up of people who are called to live out heaven's values in the midst of a very unheavenly world. We receive instructions from above with our feet planted here below. We are to think heavenly and let it show in our earthly walk. We are looking for the return of Jesus, but we have a lot to do while we're waiting for him to come. What is Dr. Evans saying? He's saying that God calls his people to engage the world, not to avoid it. But of course, that begs the question. How exactly are we to engage the world? Now we can look at the second half of verse 15, which reads this, but that you keep them from the evil one. That you keep them from the evil one. According to Jesus, he wants his people to engage the world in such a way that it would require us of getting protection from Satan. Let me say that again. Jesus wants us to engage the world in such a way that it would require us needing protection from the devil. Now you're thinking to yourself, what in the world is that? What kind of engagement does Jesus have in mind here? What kind of engagement would necessitate us needing to get protection from Satan? 
Well, it's really no different than any other engagement that would provoke somebody that would want to come after you to where you need to be protected from them. It's the kind of engagement that makes someone feel fat. Fat. F-A-T. Frustrated, angry, and triggered. Jesus wants you to make Satan fat. Okay? He wants you to live your life on earth in such a way that Satan is going to get frustrated at, angry with, and triggered by you. That's how Jesus wants you to engage this world. But you're thinking, how in the world do we do that? How do we make Satan fat? Let's go back to that Tony Evans quote, but let's just read a small portion of it. Listen again to what he says. The church is made up of people who are called to live out heaven's values in the midst of a very unheavenly world. We receive instructions from above with our feet planted here below. We are to think heavenly and let it show in our earthly walk. Here we see that the way we engage the world that expresses our love for the world but also provokes Satan because it makes him fat is when we live out the values of God's heavenly kingdom. The values of God's heavenly kingdom. The values that we read in the Bible, like the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, like do not cheat, do not steal, do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Or the values that we read about in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Values that we read about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 and 6, like turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, pray for your enemies, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. It's when we live out these values that we express our love for the world the way God loves the world and it also simultaneously provokes Satan because you're making him feel fat. And notice what Dr. Evans says. All of these values come from. Where does it originate from? Instructions from above. What is that referring to? That's the Bible, folks. The Bible. This is why scripture is so important because that is the only place where we learn the values of God's heavenly kingdom, okay? And it's as we learn more of these instructions and as we apply it that we make our great enemy very self-conscious and very much provoked. You're making him look fat and feel fat. Hey, while we're on the topic of making Satan feel fat, here's something you need to understand as a clear implication. And this might be hard for you to hear, but you need to hear it. If your Christian faith is not causing you to feel satanic threats, there's something wrong with your Christian faith. Let me say that again. If your Christian life is not resulting in you coming under satanic, aggressive threats, then you need to really wonder if you're really living the Christian life. Because true Christian living will always be threatened by Satan. And I don't mean threats like demon possession or your house getting haunted and you see you know, ghastly figures in the dark in your closet somewhere. I'm talking about threats that come in the form of suffering. If your Christian life is devoid of suffering that comes in the form of sorrows, setbacks, and struggles, but instead your Christianity is making you quite comfortable on this earth, I'm sorry to say, folks, you're not living a true Christian life. You're not. Because genuine Christian living will always involve satanic aggressions. I mean, think about it. Do you think people who are under protective custody, do you think they're living comfortable lives? Do you think people who have to go into those uh, witness protection programs, do you think they're comfortable? No. It's those who don't require any protections who are comfortable. They're the ones who are carefree. They're the ones who don't have to look over their shoulders, always be vigilant, always watchful. And yet the Bible says the Christian life 
is a watchful life. It requires you to be vigilant because you have an enemy that prowls around like a devouring, roaring lion, you see? If comfort is a characteristic of your Christian faith, that isn't Christian faith. Comfort and Christianity should not be synonymous. Now, I know some of you hear this and you don't like that. And you might be even questioning me in your mind right now, Pastor, are you telling me that in order for me to, real, to live a real authentic Christian life that I have to like give all my money away, live in poverty, move into the inner city because people who live like that compared to me, I'm much more comfortable than they are. Is that what you're saying, that I can only live in terms of how I live my life on earth? Well, you know what? You stumbled upon now the third reason why God gave us his word. And let's go into that now by going to my final point. So Christians can remember they're not better than the world. Read again what it says in verse 17 of our passage. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You see that word sanctify in the original Greek? It's literally the word purify or make clean. Now, let me ask. What is Jesus assuming about us Christians, his followers, when he's praying to God that he wants us to be sanctified? Isn't he assuming that we're no different than the world? Isn't he assuming that we're just as selfish, just as sinister, just as sinful as the people of the world? I mean, how else can you explain God praying, Jesus praying for us to be sanctified unless we have a tendency or we already are in an unsanctified state of mind? Consider what theologian Warren Wearsby says about all this. He writes this, quote, The burden of our Lord's prayer in John 17 is sanctity, practical holy living to the glory of God. We are in the world, but not of the world, and we must not live like the world. Sometimes we think it would be easier if we were, quote, out of the world. But this is not true. Wherever we go, we take our own sinful self with us, and the powers of darkness will follow us. I have met people who have gone into spiritual isolation in order to become more holy, only to discover that it does not work. End quote. What is he saying? He's saying, apart from the grace and mercy of God, You, Christian, you, saint, are just as capable of being as hateful to God as the people of the world. If it were not so, there would not be the numerous warning passages that we do see in the New Testament. Passages like 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. Here, we are being warned. Why would, be, why would we be warned of something if it wasn't a real threat? It is a real threat. The Bible tells us it is possible for genuine, devoted lovers of God to take on the persona, to take on the mindset of those who hate God that manifests in things called the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, what in the world are these three things? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life? I like how one pastor by the name of Alan Ratta, how he explains it. Listen to what he says. Quote, the Apostle John wrote about three ancient evil motivational forces, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These ancient lusts can be easily associated with three isms. You may not know it yet, but you have a favorite ism. They have influenced your heart, your thoughts, and caused you to make some of the worst choices of your life. Who are these dastardly isms? They are hedonism, 
lust of the flesh, the pursuit or of devotion to pleasure, especially pleasure of the senses. It buys into the idea that it is morally and ethically right to do what is needed to achieve personal pleasure. Materialism, lust of the eyes, the pursuit of acquiring material things, a preoccupation with material objects, comforts with a disinterest in or rejection of spiritual, intellectual, or cultural values. Egotism, the pride of life, the pursuit of self-interest, the drive to maintain and enhance favorable views of oneself that generally features an inflated opinion of one's personal features and importance, end quote. The Bible makes it clear, folks. Christians are capable of being just as wretched, just as wicked as God-haters. Just as capable. And it all centers on comfort. Comfort. Folks, don't get me wrong. Being comfortable and having comfort in your life is not inherently wrong. It's not inherently sinful, okay? But when you crave comfort, when you demand comfort, when you feel entitled to comfort, now a reaction has started in your heart, okay? And it does not stop until it results in you becoming the product of hedonistic, materialistic, and egotistical maniac where the only mindset that drives your life is me, 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 mine, 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 now, now, now. This is why God gave us his word. So that as we come under it, we would be sanctified. We would be purified from these isms or whatever isms that are out there today that is part of the machine that rages against our holy God. See? And the more we are sanctified, the less we will judge the world with condemnation and the more we will serve the world with compassion. Because what is the underlying mindset of those kinds of people who call themselves Christian, who just rage against the world with such vitriolic, holy hatred? Isn't it the assumption that says, I'm nothing like the world. I'm not capable of being like the world. I could not be God-hating like the world. Any sane person who sits under the word of God can never come to that conclusion because the moment you are exposed to the word of God is the very same moment you will be exposed by the word of God. Like the shiniest, clearest mirror of all showing you what's really going on with you. You see? We need the word to be sanctified. And sanctified we do become because again, what does the Bible principally teach what is it primarily about it's the gospel and what is the gospel the gospel is the good news that says god truly genuinely is much better than any of you better than any of us right he is far superior and he's not capable of being as wretched and as wicked as we are to where he has every right to condemn us to reject us to destroy us and yet he's moved with compassion He's moved with mercy. He's moved with love to the point where he comes into the world as a man, Jesus Christ, so that he could suffer the full penalty of our sins, suffer the full punishment for all of our unrighteousness, suffer the full condemnation of all the various isms that we are currently living out right now, to where if you put your faith and trust in him as your savior, as your Lord, as your king, as your master, you are forgiven. You are acquitted and you are given eternal life. And the more you hear that gospel, the more you'll hear about God's compassion. The more you hear about God's compassion, the more 
you will love the way God loves. And the more you love the way God loves, the more you will love the world the way you should by living out the values of God's kingdom. And the more you live out the values of God's kingdom, the more you will make Satan feel fat and come under aggression. And the more you come under aggression, the more you will suffer for his name's sake to where through your suffering, people will be affected by it the way you, in an analogous way, was affected by the sufferings of Christ. They will be changed, they will be transformed because Christ is being displayed through you. All of that, all of that comes from the very word of God, the scriptures, because it's only in the scriptures that you have the gospel that Paul calls what? The power of God for salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation. Christian, what's powering you today? What's empowering you to live your life right now? Is it money? Is it beauty? Is it status? Is it fame? Or is it the power of God in Jesus Christ? as told to us in the gospel that is only found in the word of God. My prayer to where if we are going to live out our commission of being a blessing to the world, that you do not let go and do not forget the gospel by never forsaking the scriptures known as the word of God. May you always cling to that word and trust in it with all your heart. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to always remember that as we gather together, we come, most importantly, to sit under your word, to be changed by it, to be purified and cleansed so that we can live out these values that you have called us to live so that we can love the world the way you call us to love, not the way the world tells us, but in a way that makes our great enemy frustrated, angry, and triggered by us that would warrant our need for protection. And we thank you that you do protect us. You protect our livelihood. You protect our destiny. You protect our status as your beloved children. And Father, I pray that as we continue to gather back together in person and as we continue to worship you through our online platforms, that we would always seek your word, that we would depend on it more than anything else. Father, we thank you for your word, for in it we find the source of life, the hope of the world. We hear the gospel message. And so, Father, may we move forward from this day forward till the day we see you face to face, always trusting in your word. We ask that you would hear us now, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.